Thank you, Ian, for, for leading us. Um, let me start a, a screen share. And uh, Ian, you need to let me know whether this is working. You need to unmute yourself. Yeah, we can see that. Excellent. That's great. So uh, tonight, what, we, what we're aiming to do is to continue uh, our, our series, Heroes and Villains. And it will be the last one in the series. We're going to try to... Um, attempt to do something a little bit different um, with two morning services um, kind of refining our way we were just talking and saying this morning um, I think both of us have only done once a double service um, before and uh, with the complexity as well as having a service that is being streamed publicly it just increases um, the, the amount of thinking that is required into that. So we, we felt that we um, will probably um, finish this mini series here for now. And we will attempt to do um, something a little bit different on Sunday evenings um, as well. But we'll, we'll keep you uh, updated on that. Just keep your eyes on the day, uh, weekly news as that would be helpful. So tonight we're looking at Nicodemus and I guess probably anybody um, familiar um, a little bit with the scriptures would remember this story. Uh, certainly it is one of those memorable stories that's three. sticking with us um, ever since our days in Sunday school uh, because it is quite unique. So, uh, first of all, who is Nicodemus? Very interestingly, the name, this is uh, uh, Greek for show-off. So, if you ever want to impress people, uh, you, you can do that. Uh, the, the name Nicodemus is actually made out of Nike and Demas. Nike, um, very well known. You see, I, did, I didn't know this. The famous uh, sports brand was the Greek word for victory. So, the victory of the people. He was part of the Sanhedrin, which was uh, a body of religious leaders and scholars, um, usually local, that were specialists in law and religion. And very often any matter that <coughs> included those couple of issues would have been discussed by these uh, very wise and educated men. They were very often privileged as well. And as a result of being part of a body like that, um, they would have been very influential and Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin. And one of the tasks, and here is where it kind of connects with us, with Jesus, one of the tasks of those people that were part of the Sanhedrin was that of evaluating the teaching of somebody who was appearing on the scene, whether a, a, a rabbi or a prophet, and making sure that what those people were teaching was uh, kosher. <laughs> or uh, according to what should have been taught about it. There's not a wealth of information in scripture about him, but there are a few glimpses that will help us to, to know um, who Nicodemus was. And probably the most um, recognized passage is in John chapter 3, when by night Nicodemus goes to see Jesus. And the first thing that really strikes me about Nicodemus is his sense of curiosity. John chapter 3, verse 2. He comes to Jesus by night and he says to him, Rabbi, 
we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, a lot can be read into the reason why he went by night. Depends on what side of the fence you are. It's uh, akin to an item of news. You can look at an item of news and you can come with different conclusions. In the same way, you can look at that comment that John is making about Nicodemus coming at night. And you can, if you're critical of Nicodemus or hostile towards him, you would say, well, maybe he was ashamed and maybe he just didn't want to be seen in Jesus's presence. Maybe he was a coward. Maybe he was too much afraid of compromising his position as being part of the Sanhedrin. Maybe he wanted to keep his anonymity. Maybe he wanted this encounter to be confidential. If you follow the other side of the fence, you would say, no, simply put, he was avoiding the hustle and bustle of daytime when Jesus would have been so busy with many people trying to see him. And he chose that time at night to have an undisturbed conversation where the two of them could be peacefully talking about deep spiritual things. And I'm inclined to say that perhaps he was, I fall on that side of the fence. I see that he's saying, he's recognizing that there's something special about Jesus. And although he was a lot older than Jesus and in a very high position, hierarchically probably he, he, he would have trumped Jesus's position, yet he comes to Jesus and calls him rabbi. There's a real sense of respect and honor from Nicodemus. And he says, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. That's a bizarre statement that he brings here because he's almost contradicting himself. If you're a 21st century evangelical, you'd be thinking, what is he talking about? Because what Nicodemus is saying, I know that you are a, God, a teacher that God has sent. Why? Is it because your teaching is great? No. He says, because no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So actually, Nicodemus perceives something that's very significant to the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus had a combination of the authority that the teaching had in combination with the signs and wonders that were authenticating the message. The message of the kingdom of God was proven by the power of God. There wasn't that dissection between the two. The two were part of the same thing. And Nicodemus looks at the signs and the wonders, and he comes to the conclusion that if the signs and wonders are from God, the teaching that Jesus is bringing must also be from God. And I love the way he's curious about it. I love the way he wants to have a first-hand encounter with Jesus. I love the way he's prodding for more. He doesn't rely on second-hand information. He doesn't rely on opinions. He wants to meet Jesus personally, and he has that curiosity, and I love that about Nicodemus.
As part of their conversation, Jesus brings something very important to understanding again, Jesus's mission and ministry. So again, we're in John 3. Jesus is saying to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus asks, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And then I love the way Jesus gently admonishes him. And he says, you're a teacher in Israel and you do not understand these things. And then he proceeds to guide him through the Old Testament and gives him the example that is very well known from Moses's ministry. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. There's a mixture of words there on your screen. You see, Nicodemus hears the message of Jesus about being born again, which is the message of the kingdom of God, but doesn't quite understand it. And again, don't be too harsh. This, this really doesn't quite make sense. This is something quite new. So he's asking a physical question to a spiritual statement that Jesus has made. And Jesus is beginning to admonish and unpack, looking at the Old Testament, explaining his mission. You see, I wonder if Nicodemus was so locked into a system of teaching that when he hears about the need to be born again, he, he couldn't get that. Because everything in terms of righteousness, as we heard this morning from, from what Paul was striving for, it, and we'll be looking at this next week as well, is earned. And suddenly Jesus is saying, it's not about that. It's about being born again. And this would have been very difficult because perhaps Nicodemus was locked into the system. He, he was too narrow-minded in his understanding of spirituality and everything was filled with defined expectations. Maybe he was just too proud to admit the need to change. Certainly it's difficult to make a U-turn when you have a spiritual status and a status in your community. Hard to know. One thing is sure, Jesus is pointing really strongly that it isn't about achieved virtue. It isn't about theological acumen. It isn't about what you do. It's about the need to experience a revelation of the need to be born again. That's right centrally there. And right in the middle of the conversation of the two is John 3.16, which is undoubtedly the most recognized verse in the Bible, through which Jesus is explaining to him how he can become a follower of Jesus, explaining God's love and his sacrifice through his son that enables us to become followers of Jesus. We don't know how the conversation really ended. We don't know what was in Nicodemus's mind. It's one of those curiosities of mine. I'd love to have a brew with somebody like Nicodemus and ask him, how, how did it impact you? Did it make you 
wonder about your own theological system? Did it bring a change in your heart? We don't know. But we find him, as we journey in the Gospel of John further on, in a situation where, again, as Jesus was being discussed, Nicodemus calls for fairness. He stands up for Jesus. John 7, verse 15. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, and who was one of their number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. This must have been a very brave thing that Nicodemus does. And I don't know, once again, whether this would have been Nicodemus's personality. Maybe he's just that guy that we all know, that person that stands up for truth in whatever circumstance, in whatever the issue is. He's always going to have the boldness to stand up for what's right and speak out for what's right. Maybe. Or maybe his encounter with Jesus would have so impacted him that he had to do something about it. And he simply <laughs> does what a good Jewish thinker would do. He causes a challenge by asking a question, a very fair question, almost encouraging them to give Jesus a chance to explain himself. It makes me wonder whether if he could have really said, he would have said, if you were to meet him, you may think differently. You know what it's like. You hear a conversation with somebody and somebody's making an assertion about somebody else that you know, and you have to tell them, I think you've got it wrong. If you met this person and you talked to them and you really knew what they were about, you wouldn't think that, that you may be thinking as a perception. Their reply is pretty mocking and really almost accusing him of uh, uh, really not, not understanding that this is impossible. Again, they were locked into a system in which it would be impossible for them to see a prophet come out of Galilee. Such a dangerous thing that sometimes I wonder if we need to beware that we don't put people down because of our expectations. And then, because it's in the series around Easter time, we find him right at the very end of Jesus's earthly ministry after the crucifixion. John 19, verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought the mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds. Well, at a time when most scattered, even the closest disciples, you find these two unusual suspects, unlikely heroes, 
<laughs> those who we could have easily dismissed thinking that they were too concerned about their image to show themselves as disciples of Jesus. Yet here they are at the moment of crunch where actually they had nothing to gain because Jesus was dead. So humanly speaking, it was a lost cause. Yet somehow in a beautiful way, they have this dangerous and courageous association, these two high flyers, high-ranking members of the Jewish elite are doing something very precious for Jesus. I think it's a sign of real care and appreciation for him. And he was, would have been a very costly and sacrificial act of worship, pretty extravagant. That would have been 34 kilograms. That's, that's a huge amount of anointing myrrh and aloes. It would have been very, very expensive. I don't know about you, but those who know me closely, I am a pragmatist which is a dangerous thing. And I would have thought, well, you know, what's the point in doing all that? But a worshiper doesn't think like that. Somehow a worshiper thinks with the affections of the heart and with that sense of adoration that actually makes you do something that in the eyes of others looks very expensive. And that's what they did. The biblical scholar Merrill Kenny describes this burial process, and this is what he says. The Jews did not embalm like the Egyptians did by removing the soft organs of the body and by trying the muscular tissues with preservatives. The corpse was washed and swathed in bandage-like wrappings from armpits to feet in folds, in the folds of which spices were placed and the cloth was wound around the head. This would have been a difficult task, peeling Jesus' bloody body from the cross and carrying him the distance to the tomb, body fluid still dripping. They had to carefully wrap him in the bandages and anoint his body with both the myrrh as a preservative and the aloes and the perfumes to minimize the stench of decomposition. This was an act of love for Joseph and Nicodemus, two high-ranking religious officials stooping low and exhausting themselves in the honor of their Lord. So beautifully captured of these two men serving Jesus. So we may ask the question, so what? What do we see here in Nicodemus's life and I would say the first thing that strikes me is that we are all on a personal spiritual journey that doesn't look the same for everybody. Nicodemus had to dialogue with Jesus in the middle of the night. Saul, who again, in some ways, were very similar to Nicodemus. He was a learned theologian, zealous for God, zealous about Jewish teaching, being pure. Yet the two had a totally different encounter with Jesus. Saul had a spiritual revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus as he was going on to persecute Christians. And Nicodemus had that encounter with Jesus that we'd seen. And we can use so many examples. 
but we are all on a personal spiritual journey. And I love the fact that God doesn't have a template of how encounters with him happen. And he's highly personal. Also, the other thing that really strikes me is that God uses elite leaders as well as outcasts. If you're kind of politically left-leaning, you tend to always see Jesus only hanging out with outcasts and only being around the poor and the downtrodden. And certainly there's a lot of truth about Jesus connecting with outcasts and making him stand out. But he didn't just hang around the outcasts. He hung out with everybody. He didn't treat anybody preferentially, but he didn't eliminate anybody. The only people that he criticized were those who were religious hypocrites, who were self-righteous and judgmental of others and resisting the grace of God. But everybody else, regardless of class, regardless of background, was welcomed as his follower. I think this challenges me devotionally to be like Nicodemus, to stay spiritually hungry, to have that curiosity, to push in further, to discover Jesus more firsthand, personally. And again, as I'm thinking about what Jesus taught Nicodemus about divine revelation, I thank the Holy Spirit every day for opening my eyes to understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I have a lot of friends who have come to church, even read the New Testament, done maybe an Alpha course, and they just don't get it. It never ceases to give me a huge sense of gratitude that the Holy Spirit enabled me to get it. I'm challenged by Nicodemus's extravagant and costly worship, where nothing was too much to demonstrate the love for Jesus, of what he experienced of him. And this also challenges me for mission, not just devotion. Praying, like I mentioned before, for those friends of mine, just to have the curiosity and conviction to discover that Jesus is the Son of God, to discover that they need to be born again, to discover the truth of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. But whosoever believes in him, shall not die, shall not perish, but have eternal life and discover it, particularly in this season. So that's my encouragement. That's my challenge as we look at Nicodemus's life. Thanks, Ian.